Chapter One of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Peter Dan. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter One. After entering at break of day the inner roadstead of the port of Toulon, exchanging several loud hails with one of the guard boats of the fleet which directed him where he was to take up his berth, Master Gunner Peyrol let go the anchor of the sea-worn and battered ship in his charge, between the arsenal and the town, in full view of the principal quay. The course of his life, which in the opinion of any ordinary person might have been regarded as full of marvellous incidents, only he himself had never marvelled at them, had rendered him undemonstrative to such a degree that he did not even let out a sigh of relief at the rumble of the chain and yet it ended a most anxious six months of knocking about at sea with valuable merchandise in a damaged hull, most of the time on short rations, always on the lookout for English cruisers, once or twice on the verge of shipwreck, and more than once on the verge of capture. But as to that, old Payroll had made up his mind from the first to blow up his valuable charge, unemotionally, for such was his character formed under the sun of the Indian seas, in lawless contests with his kind, for a little loot that vanished as soon as grasped, but mainly for bare life, almost as precarious to hold through its ups and downs, and which now had lasted for fifty-eight years. While his crew of half-starved scarecrows, hard as nails and ravenous as so many wolves for the delights of the shore, swarmed aloft to fill the sails nearly as thin and as patched as the grimy shirts on their backs, Payroll took a survey of the quay. Groups were forming along its whole stretch to gaze at the new arrival. Payroll noted particularly a good many men in red caps, and said to himself, Here they are. Amongst the crews of ships that had brought the trickler into the seas of the east, there were hundreds professing San Calot principles, boastful and declamatory beggars, he had thought them. But now he was beholding the shore breed those who had made the revolution safe, the real thing. Perron, after taking a good long look, went below into his cabin to make himself ready to go ashore. He shaved his big cheeks with a real English razor, looted years ago from an officer's cabin and an English East Indiaman, captured by a ship he was serving in then. He put on a white shirt, a short blue jacket with metal buttons, and a high roll collar, a pair of white trousers which he fastened with a red bandana handkerchief by way of a belt. With a black, shiny, low-crowned hat on his head, he made a very creditable prize-master. He beckoned from the poop to a boatman, and got himself rowed to the quay. By that time the crowd had grown to a large size. Payroll's eyes ranged over it with no great apparent interest, though it was a fact that he had never in all his man's life seen so many idle white people massed together to stare at a sailor. He had been a rover on the outer seas. He had grown into a stranger to his native country. During the few minutes it took the boatman to row him to the steps, he felt like a navigator about to land on a newly discovered shore. On putting his foot on it, he was mobbed. The arrival of a prize made by a squadron of the Republic in distant seas was not an everyday occurrence in Toulon. The wildest rumours had been already set flying. Peyrol elbowed himself through the crowd somehow, but it continued to move after him. A voice cried out, "'Where do you come from, citoyen?' "'From the other side of the world,' 
Payroll boomed out. He did not get rid of his followers till the door of the port office. There he reported himself to the proper officials as master of a prize taken off the Cape by Citoyen Reynard, commander-in-chief of the Republican squadron in the Indian Seas. He had been ordered to make for Dunkirk, but said he, having been chased by the Sacre Anglais three times in a fortnight between Cape Verde and Cape Spartel, he had made up his mind to run into the Mediterranean, where, he had understood from a Danish brig he had met at sea, there were no English men of war just then. And here he was, and there were his ship's papers and his own papers, and everything in order. He mentioned also that he was tired of rolling about the seas, and that he longed for a period of repose on shore. But, till all the legal business was settled, he remained in Toulon, roaming about the streets at a deliberate gait, enjoying general consideration as citizen payroll, and looking everybody coldly in the eye. His reticence about his past was of that kind which starts a lot of mysterious stories about a man. No doubt the maritime authorities of Toulon had a less cloudy idea of Peyrol's past, though it need not necessarily have been more exact. In the various offices connected with the sea where his duties took him, the wretched scribes and even some of the chiefs looked very hard at him as he went in and out, dressed very neatly, and always with his cudgel, which he used to leave outside the door of private offices when called in for an interview with one or another of the gold-laced lot. Having, however, cut off his queue and got in touch with some prominent patriots of the Jacobin type, Peyrol cared little for people's stares and whispers. The person that came nearest to trying his composure was a certain naval captain with a patch over one eye and a very threadbare uniform coat, who was doing some administrative work at the port office. That officer, looking up from some papers, remarked brusquely, "'As a matter of fact, you have been the best part of your life skimming the seas, if the truth were known. You must have been a deserter from the Navy at one time, whatever you may call yourself now.' There was not a quiver on the large cheeks of the gunner payroll. "'If there was anything of the sort, it was in the time of kings and aristocrats,' he said steadily. And now I have brought in a prize and a service letter from Citizen Reynaud, commanding in the Indian Seas. I can also give you the names of good Republicans in this town who know my sentiments. Nobody can say I was ever anti-revolutionary in my life. I knocked about the Eastern Seas for forty-five years, that's true. But let me observe that it was the seamen who stayed at home that let the English into the port of Toulon. He paused for a moment and then added, when one thinks of that, citoyen commandant, any little slips I and fellows of my kind may have made five thousand leagues from here and twenty years ago cannot have much importance in these times of equality and fraternity. As to fraternity, remarked the post-captain in the shabby coat, the only one you are familiar with is the Brotherhood of the Coast, I should say. Everybody in the Indian Ocean except milksops and youngsters had to be, said the untroubled citizen payroll. And we practised republican principles long before a republic was thought of, for the brothers of the coast were all equal and elected their own chiefs. They were an abominable lot of lawless ruffians, remarked the officer venomously, leaning back in his chair. You will not dare to deny that. Citizen payroll refused to take up a defensive attitude. He merely mentioned, in a neutral tone, that he had delivered his trust to the port office all right, and as to his character, he had a certificate of civism from his section. He was a patriot and entitled to his discharge. 
After being dismissed by a nod, he took up his cudgel outside the door and walked out of the building with a calmness of rectitude. His large face of the Roman type betrayed nothing to the wretched quill drivers who whispered on his passage. As he went along the streets, he looked, as usual, everybody in the eye, but that very same evening he vanished from Toulon. It wasn't that he was afraid of anything. His mind was as calm as the natural set of his florid face. Nobody could know what his forty years or more of sea life had been unless he told them himself, and of that he didn't mean to tell more than what he had told the inquisitive captain with the patch over one eye. But he didn't want any bother for certain other reasons, and more than anything else he didn't want to be sent perhaps to serve in the fleet now fitting out in Toulon. So, at dusk, he passed through the gate on the road to Fréjus in the high two-wheeled cart belonging to a well-known farmer whose habitation lay that way. His personal belongings were brought down and piled up on the tailboard of the cart by some ragamuffin patriots whom he engaged in the street for that purpose. The only indiscretion he committed was to pay them for their trouble with a large handful of assignats. From such a prosperous seaman, however, this generosity was not so very compromising. He himself got into the cart over the wheel with such slow and ponderous movements that the friendly farmer felt called upon to remark, "'Ah, we are not so young as we used to be, you and I.' "'I have also an awkward wound,' said Citizen Payroll, sitting down heavily. And so, from farmer's cart to farmer's cart, getting lifts all along, jogging in a cloud of dust between stone walls and through little villages well known to him from his boyhood days, in a landscape of stony hills, pale rocks and dusty green of olive trees, Citizen Payroll went on unmolested till he got down clumsily in the yard of an inn on the outskirts of the town of Hyères. The sun was setting to his right. Near a clump of dark pines with blood-red trunks in the sunset, Payroll perceived a rutty track branching off in the direction of the sea. At that spot, Citizen Payroll had made up his mind to leave the high road. Every feature of the country with the darkly wooded rises, the barren, flat expanse of stones and sombre bushes to his left, appealed to him with a sort of strange familiarity, because they had remained unchanged since the days of his boyhood. The very cartwheel tracks scored deep into the stony ground had kept their physiognomy, and far away, like a blue thread, there was the sea of the Hier roadstead with a lumpy indigo swelling still beyond, which was the island of Porquerolles. He had an idea that he had been born on Porquerolles, but he really did not know. The notion of a father was absent from his mentality. What he remembered of his parents was a tall, lean, brown woman in rags, who was his mother. But then they were working together at a farm which was on the mainland. He had fragmentary memories of her shaking down olives, picking stones out of a field, or handling a manure fork like a man, tireless and fierce, with wisps of greyish hair flying about her bony face, and of himself running barefooted in connection with a flock of turkeys, with hardly any clothes on his back. At night, by the farmer's favour, they were permitted to sleep in a sort of ruinous byre built of stones, and with only half a roof on it, lying side by side on some old straw on the ground. And it was on a bundle of straw that his mother had tossed ill for two days, and had died in the night. In the darkness, her silence, her cold face, had given him an awful scare. 
He supposed they had buried her, but he didn't know, because he had rushed out terror-struck, and never stopped till he got as far as a little place by the sea called Almanar, where he hid himself on board a tartane that was lying there with no one on board. He went into the hold because he was afraid of some dogs on shore. He found down there a heap of empty sacks which made a luxurious couch, and being exhausted went to sleep like a stone. Some time during the night the crew came on board, and the Tartane sailed for Marseille. That was another awful scare, being hauled out by the scruff of the neck on the deck, and being asked who the devil he was and what he was doing there. Only from that one he could not run away. There was water all round him, and the whole world, including the coast not very far away, wobbled in a most alarming manner. Three bearded men stood about him, and he tried to explain to them that he had been working at payrolls. Payroll was the farmer's name. The boy didn't know that he had one of his own. Moreover, he didn't know very well how to talk to people, and they must have misunderstood him. Thus the name of Payroll stuck to him for life. There the memories of his native country stopped, overlaid by other memories, with a multitude of impressions of endless oceans, of the Mozambique Channel, of Arabs and Negroes, of Madagascar, of the coast of India, of islands and channels and reefs, of fights at sea, rows on shore, desperate slaughter and desperate thirst, of all sorts of ships, one after another, merchant ships and frigates and privateers, of reckless men and enormous sprees. In the course of years he had learned to speak intelligibly and think connectedly, and even to read and write after a fashion. The name of the farmer Payroll, attached to his person on account of his inability to give a clear account of himself, acquired a sort of reputation, both openly in the ports of the East and secretly amongst the brothers of the coast, that strange fraternity with something masonic and not a little piratical in its constitution. Round the Cape of Storms, which is also the Cape of Good Hope, the words Republic, Nation, Tyranny, Liberty, equality and fraternity and the cult of the supreme being came floating on board ships from home. New cries and new ideas which did not upset the slowly developed intelligence of the gunner payroll. They seemed the invention of landsmen, of whom the seamen payroll knew very little, nothing, so to speak. Now, after nearly fifty years of lawful and lawless sea life, citizen payroll at the yard-gate of the roadside inn, looked at the late scene of his childhood. He looked at it without any animosity, but a little puzzled as to his bearings amongst the features of the land. Yes, it must be somewhere in that direction, he thought vaguely. Decidedly, he would go no further along the high road. A few yards away, the woman of the inn stood looking at him, impressed by the good clothes, the great shaven cheek, the well-to-do air of that seaman, and suddenly Payroll noticed her. With her anxious brown face, her grey locks and her rustic appearance, she might have been his mother as he remembered her, only she wasn't in rags. "'Hey, la mer!' hailed Payroll. "'Have you got a man to lend a hand with my chest into the house?' He looked so prosperous and so authoritative that she piped without hesitation in a thin voice, "'Mais oui, citoyen, he will be here in a moment.' In the dusk, the clump of pines across the road looked very black against the quiet, clear sky, and Citizen Payroll gazed at the scene of his young misery with the greatest possible placidity. 
Here he was after nearly fifty years, and to look at things it seemed like yesterday. He felt for all this neither love nor resentment. He felt a little funny, as it were, and the funniest thing was the thought which crossed his mind that he could indulge his fancy, if he had a mind to it, to buy up all this land to the furthermost field, away over there where the track lost itself, sinking into the flats bordering the sea, where the small rise at the end of the Gien Peninsula had assumed the appearance of a black cloud. "'Tell me, my friend,' he said in his magisterial way to the farmhand with a tousled head of hair who was awaiting his good pleasure, "'doesn't this track lead to Almanar?' "'Yes,' said the labourer, and Peyrol nodded. The man continued, mouthing his words slowly, as if unused to speech. "'To Almanar, and further, too, beyond the great pond, right out to the end of the land, to Cape Esterel.' Peyrol was lending his big, flat, hairy ear. "'If I had stayed in this country,' he thought, "'I would be talking like this fellow.' And aloud he asked, "'Are there any houses there at the end of the land?' Why, a hamlet, a hole, just a few houses round a church, and a farm where at one time they would give you a glass of wine. End of chapter 1"'Citizen Payroll stayed at the inn-yard gate "'till the night had swallowed up all those features of the land "'to which his eyes had clung as long as the last gleams of daylight. "'And even after the last gleams had gone, "'he had remained for some time staring into the darkness, "'in which all he could distinguish was the white road at his feet "'and the black heads of pines where the cart-track dipped towards the coast. "'He did not go indoors till some carters who had been refreshing themselves "'had departed with their big two-wheeled carts, piled up high with empty wine-casks in the direction of Freyu. The fact that they did not remain for the night pleased Peyrol. He ate his bit of supper alone, in silence, and with a gravity which intimidated the old woman who had aroused in him the memory of his mother. Having finished his pipe and obtained a bit of candle in a tin candlestick, Citizen Peyrol went heavily upstairs to rejoin his luggage. The crazy staircase shook and groaned under his feet as though he had been carrying a burden. The first thing he did was to close the shutters most carefully, as though he had been afraid of a breath of night air. Next he bolted the door of the room. Then, sitting on the floor, with a candlestick standing before him between his widely straggled legs, he began to undress, flinging off his coat and dragging his shirt hastily over his head. The secret of his heavy movements was disclosed then in the fact that he had been wearing next to his bare skin, like a pious penitent his hair shirt, a sort of waistcoat made of two thicknesses of old sailcloth and stitched all over in the manner of a quilt with tarred twine. Three horn buttons closed it in front. He undid them, and after he had slipped off the two shoulder straps which prevented this strange garment from sagging down on his hips, he started rolling it up. Notwithstanding all his care, there were, during this operation, several faint chinks of some metal which could not have been lead. His bare torso, thrown backwards and sustained by the rigid big arms heavily tattooed on the white skin above the elbows, Peyrol drew a long breath into his broad chest with a pepper-and-salt pelt down the breastbone. 
and not only was the breast of citizen payroll relieved to the fullest of its athletic capacity, but a change had also come over his large physiognomy, on which the expression of severe stolidity had been simply the result of physical discomfort. It wasn't a trifle to have to carry girt about your ribs and hung from your shoulders, a mass of mixed foreign coins equal to sixty or seventy thousand francs in hard cash, while as to the paper money of the Republic, payroll had had already enough experience of it to estimate the equivalent in cartloads. A thousand of them. Perhaps two thousand. Enough, in any case, to justify his flight of fancy, while looking at the countryside in the light of the sunset, that what he had on him would buy all that soil from which he had sprung. Houses, woods, vines, olives, vegetable gardens, rocks and salt lagoons. In fact, the whole landscape, including the animals in it. But Peyrot did not care for the land at all. He did not want to own any part of the solid earth for which he had no love. All he wanted from it was a quiet nook, an obscure corner out of men's sight, where he could dig a hole unobserved. That would have to be done pretty soon, he thought. One could not live for an indefinite number of days with a treasure strapped round one's chest. Meantime, an utter stranger in his native country, the landing on which was perhaps the biggest adventure of his adventurous life, he threw his jacket over the rolled-up waistcoat and laid his head down on it after extinguishing the candle. The night was warm. The floor of the room happened to be of planks, not of tiles. He was no stranger to that sort of couch. With his cudgel laid ready at his hand, Payroll slept soundly till the noises and the voices about the house and on the road woke him up shortly after sunrise. He threw open the shutter, welcoming the morning light and the morning breeze in the full enjoyment of idleness, which, to a seaman of his kind, is inseparable from the fact of being on shore. There was nothing to trouble his thoughts, and though his physiognomy was far from being vacant, it did not wear the aspect of profound meditation. It had been by the merest accident that he had discovered, during the passage, in a secret recess within one of the lockers of his prize, two bags of mixed coins, gold mohurs, Dutch ducats, Spanish pieces, English guineas. After making that discovery, he had suffered from no doubts whatever. Loot? big or little, was a natural fact of his freebooter's life. And now, when by the force of things he had become a master gunner of the navy, he was not going to give up his fine to confounded landsmen, mere sharks, hungry quill-drivers, who would put it in their own pockets. As to imparting the intelligence to his crew, all bad characters, he was much too wise to do anything of the kind. They would not have been above cutting his throat, an old fighting sea-dog, a brother of the coast, had more right to such plunder than anybody on earth. So, at odd times, while at sea, he had busied himself within the privacy of his cabin in constructing the ingenious canvas waistcoat in which he could take his treasure ashore secretly. It was bulky, but his garments were of an ample cut, and no wretched custom guard would dare to lay hands on a successful prize-master going to the port admiral's office to make his report. The scheme had worked perfectly. He found, however, that this secret garment, which was worth precisely its weight in gold, tried his endurance more than he had expected. It wearied his body, and even depressed his spirit somewhat. It made him less active, and also less communicative. It reminded him all the time that he must not get into trouble of any sort, 
keep clear of rows, of intimacies, of promiscuous jollities. This was one of the reasons why he had been anxious to get away from the town. Once, however, his head was laid on his treasure, he could sleep the sleep of the just. Nevertheless, in the morning, he shrank from putting it on again. With a mixture of sailor's carelessness and of old-standing belief in his own luck, he simply stuffed the precious waistcoat up the flue of the empty fireplace. Then he dressed and had his breakfast. An hour later, mounted on a hired mule, he started down the track as calmly as though setting out to explore the mysteries of a desert island. His aim was the end of the peninsula, which, advancing like a colossal jetty into the sea, divides the picturesque roadstead of Hier from the headlands and curves of the coast, forming the approaches of the port of Toulon. The path along which the sure-footed mule took him, for Peyrol, once he had put its head in the right way, made no attempt at steering, descended rapidly to a plain of arid aspect, with the white gleams of the Salina in the distance, bounded by bluish hills of no great elevation. Soon all traces of human habitations disappeared from before his roaming eyes. This part of his native country was more foreign to him than the shores of the Mozambique Channel, the coral strands of India, the forests of Madagascar. Before long he found himself on the neck of the Jiam Peninsula, impregnated with salt and containing a blue lagoon, particularly blue, darker, and even more still than the expanses of the sea to the right and left of it, from which it was separated by narrow strips of land not a hundred yards wide in places. The track ran indistinct, presenting no wheel ruts, and with patches of efflorescent salt as white as snow between the tufts of wiry grass and the particularly dead-looking bushes. The whole neck of land was so low that it seemed to have no more thickness than a sheet of paper laid on the sea. Citizen Payroll saw on the level of his eye, as if from a mere raft, sails of various craft, some white and some brown, while before him his native island of Porquerol rose dull and solid beyond a wide strip of water. The mule, which knew rather better than Citizen Payroll where it was going to, took him presently amongst the gentle rises at the end of the peninsula. The slopes were covered with scanty grass crooked boundary walls of dry stones ran across the fields, and above them, here and there, peeped a low roof of red tiles, shaded by the heads of delicate acacias. At a turn of the ravine appeared a village, with its few houses, mostly with their blind walls to the path, and at first no living soul in sight. Three tall plantains, very ragged as to their bark, and very poor as to foliage, stood in a group in an open space, and Citizen Payroll was cheered up by the sight of a dog sleeping in the shade. The mule swerved with great determination towards a massive stone trough under the village fountain. Payroll, looking round from the saddle while the mule drank, could see no signs of an inn. Then, examining the ground nearer to him, he perceived a ragged man sitting on a stone. He had a broad leathern belt, and his legs were bare to the knee. He was contemplating the stranger on the mule with stony surprise. His dark, nut-brown face contrasted strongly with his grey shock of hair. At a sign from Peyrol, he showed no reluctance, and approached him readily without changing the stony character of his stare. The thought that if he had remained at home he would have probably looked like that man crossed unbidden the mind of Peyrol. With that gravity from which he seldom departed, he inquired if there were any inhabitants besides himself in the village. 
Then, to Payroll's surprise, that destitute idler smiled pleasantly and said that the people were out looking after their bits of land. There was enough of the peasant born in Payroll still to remark that he had seen no man, woman or child, or four-footed beast for hours, and that he would hardly have thought that there was any land worth looking after anywhere around. But the other insisted. Well, they were working on it all the same, at least those that had any. At the sound of the voices, the dog got up with a strange air of being all backbone, and approaching in dismal fidelity, stood with his nose close to his master's calves. "'And you,' said Bayron, "'have you no land, then?' The man took his time to answer. "'I have a boat.' Bayron became interested when the man explained that his boat was on the salt pond, the large, deserted and opaque sheet of water lying dead between the two great bays of the living sea. Peyrol wondered aloud why anyone should want a boat on it. "'There is fish there,' said the man. "'And is the boat all your worldly goods?' asked Peyrol. The flies buzzed. The mule hung its head, moving its ears and flapping its thin tail languidly. "'I have a sort of hut down by the lagoon, and a net or two. the man confessed, as it were. Peyrol, looking down, completed the list by saying, "'And this dog!' The man again took his time to say, He is company. Peyrol sat as serious as a judge. You haven't much to make a living of, he delivered himself at last. However, is there no inn, cafe, or some place where one could put up for a day? I have heard up inland that there was some such place. I will show it to you, said the man, who then went back to where he had been sitting and picked up a large empty basket before he led the way. His dog followed with his head and tail low, and then came Peyrol, dangling his heels against the sides of the intelligent mule, which seemed to know beforehand all that was going to happen. At the corner where the houses ended, there stood an old wooden cross stuck into a square block of stone. The lonely boatman of the lagoon of Pesquier pointed in the direction of a branching path where the rises terminating the peninsula sank into a shallow pass. There were leaning pines on the skyline, and in the pass itself dull, silvery-green patches of olive orchards below a long yellow wall backed by dark cypresses, and the red roofs of buildings which seemed to belong to a farm. "'Will they lodge me there?' asked Peyrot. "'I don't know. They will have plenty of room, that's certain. There are no travellers here. But as for a place of refreshment, it used to be that. You have only got to walk in.' If he isn't there, the mistress is sure to be there to serve you. She belongs to the place. She was born on it. We know all about her. What sort of woman is it? asked Citizen Peyrol, who was very favourably impressed by the aspect of the place. Well, you are going there. You shall soon see. She is young. And the husband? asked Peyrol, who, looking down into the other's steady upward stare, detected a flicker in the brown, slightly faded eyes. "'Why are you staring at me like this? "'I haven't got a black skin, have I?' "'The other smiled, "'showing in the thin pepper-and-salt growth on his face "'as sound a set of teeth as Citizen Peyrol himself. "'There was in his bearing something embarrassed, but not unfriendly, "'and he uttered a phrase from which Peyrol discovered "'that the man before him, "'the lonely, hirsute, sunburnt and bare-legged human being at his stirrup, "'nourished patriotic suspicions as to his character.' and this seemed to him outrageous. 
He wanted to know, in a severe voice, whether he looked like a confounded landsman of any kind. He swore also, without, however, losing any of the dignity of expression inherent in his type of features and in the very modelling of his flesh. For an aristocrat you don't look like one, but neither do you look like a farmer or a peddler or a patriot. You don't look like anything that has been seen here for years and years and years. You look like one, I hardly dare say what, you might be a priest. Astonishment kept Peyrol perfectly quiet on his mule. Do I dream? he asked himself mentally. You aren't mad? he asked aloud. Do you know what you're talking about? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? All the same, persisted the other innocently. It is much less than ten years ago since I saw one of them of the sort they call bishops, who had a face exactly like yours. Instinctively, Peyrol passed his hand over his face. What could there be in it? Peyrol could not remember ever having seen a bishop in his life. The fellow stuck to his point, for he puckered his brow and murmured, Others too. I remember perfectly. It isn't so many years ago. Some of them skulk amongst the villagers yet, for all the chasing they got from the patriots. The sun blazed on the boulders and stones and bushes in the perfect stillness of the air. The mule, disregarding with republican austerity the neighbourhood of a stable within less than a hundred and twenty yards, dropped its head and even its ears, and dozed as if in the middle of a desert. The dog, apparently changed into stone at his master's heel, seemed to be dozing too with his nose near the ground. Peyrol had fallen into a deep meditation, and the boatman of the lagoon awaited the solution of his doubts without eagerness, and with something like a grin within his thick beard. Peyrol's face cleared. He had solved the problem, but there was a shade of vexation in his tone. Well, it can't be helped, he said. I learned to sh- Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Day from the English. I suppose that's what's the matter. At the name of the English, the boatman pricked up his ears. One can't tell where they are all gone to, he murmured. Only three years ago they swarmed about this coast in their big ships. You saw nothing but them, and they were fighting all round too long on land. Then in a week or two, quack, nobody. Cleared out, devil knows where. But perhaps you would know. Oh, yes, said Perrault. I know all about the English. Don't you worry your head. I am not troubling my head. It is for you to think about what's best to say when you speak with him up there. I mean, the master of the farm. He can't be a better patriot than I am for all my shaven face, said Peyrol. 
That would only seem strange to a savage like you. With an unexpected sigh, the man sat down at the foot of the cross, and immediately his dog went off a little way and curled himself up amongst the tufts of grass. "'We are all savages here,' said the forlorn fisherman from the lagoon. "'But the master up there is a real patriot from the town. "'If you were ever to go to Toulon and ask people about him, they would tell you. "'He first became busy purveying the guillotine "'when they were purifying the town from all aristocrats.' That was even before the English came in. After the English got driven out, there was more of that work than the guillotine could do. They had to kill traitors in the streets, in cellars, in their beds. The corpses of men and women were lying in heaps along the quays. There were a good many of his sort that got the name of drinkers of blood. Well, he was one of the best of them. I'm only just telling you. Peyron nodded. "'That will do me all right,' he said. "'And before he could pick up the reins and hit it with his heels, "'the mule, as though it had just waited for his words, "'started off along the path. "'In less than five minutes, Peyrol was dismounting "'in front of a low, long addition to the tall farmhouse "'with very few windows, and flanked by walls of stones, "'enclosing not only the yard, but apparently a field or two also. A gateway stood open to the left, but Peyrol dismounted at the door, through which he entered a bare room, with rough whitewashed walls and a few wooden chairs and tables, which might have been a rustic café. He tapped with his knuckles on the table. A young woman with a fichu round her neck and a striped white and red skirt, with black hair and a red mouth, appeared in an inner doorway. "'Bonjour, citoyen,' said Peyrol. She was so startled by the unusual aspect of this stranger that she answered him only by a murmured bonjour, but in a moment she came forward and waited expectantly. The perfect oval of her face, the colour of her smooth cheeks, and the whiteness of her throat forced from the citizen payroll a slight hiss through his clenched teeth. "'I am thirsty, of course,' he said, "'but what I really want to know is whether I can stay here.' The sound of a mule's hoofs outside caused Peyrol to start, but the woman arrested him. She is only going to the shed. She knows the way. As to what you said, the master will be here directly. Nobody ever comes here. And how long would you want to stay? The old rover of the seas looked at her searchingly. To tell you the truth, citoyenne, it may be in a manner of speaking forever. She smiled in a bright flash of teeth, without gaiety or any change in her restless eyes that roamed about the empty room, as though Peyrol had come in attended by a mob of shades. "'It's like me,' she said. "'I live as a child here.' "'You are but little more than that now,' said Peyrol, examining her with a feeling that was no longer surprise or curiosity, but seemed to be lodged in his very breast. "'Are you a patriot?' she asked, still surveying the invisible company in the room." Peyrol, who had thought that he had done with all that damned nonsense, felt angry, and also at a loss for an answer. "'I'm a Frenchman,' he said bluntly. "'Arlette!' called out an aged woman's voice through the open inner door. "'What do you want?' she answered readily. "'There's a saddled mule come into the yard.' "'All right, the man is here.' Her eyes, which had steadied, began to wander again all round and about the motionless Peyrol. She moved a step nearer to him, and asked in a low, confidential tone, "'Have you ever carried a woman's head on a pike?' 
Peyrol, who had seen fights, massacres on land and sea, towns taken by assault by savage warriors, who had killed men in attack and defence, found himself at first bereft of speech by this simple question, and next moved to speak bitterly. No, I have heard men boast of having done so. They were mostly braggarts with craven hearts. But what is all this to you? She was not listening to him the edge of her white even teeth pressing her lower lip, her eyes never at rest. Peyrol remembered suddenly the Saint-Calotte, the blood-drinker, her husband. Was it possible? Well, perhaps it was possible. He could not tell. He felt his utter incompetence. As to catching her glance, you might just as well have tried to catch a wild seabird with your hands. And altogether she was like a wild seabird, not to be grasped. But Peyrot knew how to be patient, with that patience that is so often a form of courage. He was known for it. It had served him well in dangerous situations. Once it had positively saved his life, nothing but patience. He could well wait now. He waited. And suddenly, as if tamed by his patience, this strange creature dropped her eyelids, advanced quite close to him, and began to finger the lapel of his coat, something that a child might have done. Peyrol all but gasped with surprise, but he remained perfectly still. He was disposed to hold his breath. He was touched by a soft, indefinite emotion, and as her eyelids remained lowered till her black lashes seemed to lie like a shadow on her pale cheek, there was no need for him to force a smile. After the first moment he was not even surprised. It was merely the sudden movement, not the nature of the act itself, that had startled him. "'Yes, you may stay.' I think we shall be friends. I'll tell you about the revolution. At these words, Peyrol, the man of violent deeds, felt something like a chill breath at the back of his head. What's the good of that, he said. It must be, she said, and backed away from him swiftly, and without raising her eyes, turned round and was gone in a moment, so lightly that one would have thought her feet had not touched the ground. Peyrol, staring at the open kitchen door, saw after a moment an elderly woman's head with brown thin cheeks and tied up in a coloured handkerchief, peeping at him fearfully. "'A bottle of wine, please!' he shouted at it. End of chapter 2read by Peter Dan. The Rover, Chapter 3 The affectation common to seamen of never being surprised at anything that sea or land can produce had become in payroll a second nature. Having learned from childhood to suppress every sign of wonder before all extraordinary sights and events, all strange people, all strange customs, and the most alarming phenomena of nature— as manifested, for instance, in the violence of volcanoes or the fury of human beings, he had really become indifferent, or only perhaps utterly inexpressive. He had seen so much that was bizarre or atrocious, and had heard so many astounding tales, that his usual mental reaction before a new experience was generally formulated in the words, J'en ai vu bien d'autres. The last thing which had touched him with the panic of the supernatural had been the death, under a heap of rags, of that gaunt, fierce woman, his mother, and the last thing that had nearly overwhelmed him, at the age of twelve, with another kind of terror, 
was the riot of sound and the multitude of mankind on the quays in Marseille, something perfectly inconceivable, from which he had instantly taken refuge behind a stack of wheat sacks after having been chased ashore from the Tartan. He had remained there, quaking, till a man in a cocked hat and with a sabre at his side, the boy had never seen either such a hat or such a sabre in his life, had seized him by the arm close to the armpit and had hauled him out from there. A man who might have been an ogre, only Peyrol had never heard of an ogre, but at any rate in his own way was alarming and wonderful beyond anything he could have imagined, if the faculty of imagination had been developed in him then. No doubt all this was enough to make one die of fright, but that possibility never occurred to him. Neither did he go mad, but being only a child, he had simply adapted himself, by means of passive acquiescence, to the new and inexplicable conditions of life in something like twenty-four hours. After that initiation, the rest of his existence, from flying fishes to whales and on to black men and coral reefs, to decks running with blood and thirst in open boats, was comparatively plain sailing. By the time he had heard of a revolution in France, and of certain immortal principles causing the death of many people, from the mouths of seamen and travellers and year-old gazettes coming out of Europe, he was ready to appreciate contemporary history in his own particular way. Mutiny and throwing officers overboard, he had seen that twice, and he was on a different side each time. As to this upset, he took no side. It was too far, too big, also not distinct enough. But he acquired the revolutionary jargon quickly enough and used it on occasion with secret contempt. What he had gone through, from a spell of crazy love for a yellow girl to the experience of treachery from a bosom friend and shipmate, and both those things Peyrol confessed to himself he could never hope to understand, with all the graduations of varied experience of men and passions between, had put a drop of universal scorn, a wonderful sedative, into the strange mixture which might have been called the soul of the returned parole. Therefore he not only showed no surprise, but did not feel any when he beheld the master, in the right of his wife, of the Escampobar farm. The homeless parole, sitting in the bare salle with a bottle of wine before him, was in the act of raising the glass to his lips when the man entered, ex-orator in the sections, leader of red-capped mobs, hunter of the sidevons and priests, purveyor of the guillotine, in short, a blood-drinker. And Citizen Peyrol, who had never been nearer than six thousand miles as the crow flies to the realities of the revolution, put down his glass, and in his deep, unemotional voice said, Salute! The other returned a much fainter salute, staring at the stranger of whom he had heard already. His almond-shaped, soft eyes were noticeably shiny, and so was, to a certain extent, the skin on his high but rounded cheekbones, coloured red like a mask, of which all the rest was but a mass of clipped chestnut hair, growing so thick and close around the lips as to hide altogether the design of the mouth, which, for all citizen payroll knew, might have been of a quite ferocious character. A careworn forehead and a perpendicular nose suggested a certain austerity proper to an ardent patriot. He held in his hand a long bright knife which he laid down on one of the tables at once. He didn't seem more than thirty years old, a well-made man of medium height with a lack of resolution in his bearing. Something like disillusion was suggested by the set of his shoulders. 
The effect was subtle, but Peyrol became aware of it while he explained his case, and finished the tale by declaring that he was a seaman of the Republic, and that he had always done his duty before the enemy. The blood-drinker had listened profoundly. The high arches of his eyebrows gave him an astonished look. He came close up to the table, and spoke in a trembling voice. "'You may have, but you may all the same be corrupt.' The seamen of the Republic were eaten up with corruption, paid for with the gold of the tyrants. Who would have guessed it? They all talked like patriots. And yet the English entered the harbour and landed in the town without opposition. The armies of the Republic drove them out, but treachery stalks in the land. It comes up out of the ground. It sits at our heartstones, lurks in the bosom of the representatives of the people, of our fathers, of our brothers. There was a time when civic virtue flourished, but now it has got to hide its head. And I will tell you why. There has not been enough killing. It seems as if there could never be enough of it. It's discouraging. Look what we have come to. His voice died in his throat as though he had suddenly lost confidence in himself. Bring another glass, citoyen, said Peyrol after a short pause, and let's drink together. We will drink to the confusion of traitors. I detest treachery as much as any man, but... He waited till the other had returned, then poured out the wine, and after they had touched glasses and half-emptied them, he put down his own and continued. But, you see, I have nothing to do with your politics. I was at the other side of the world, therefore you can't suspect me of being a traitor. You showed no mercy, you other San Galot, to the enemies of the Republic at home, and I killed her enemies abroad, far away. "'You were cutting off heads without much compunction.' "'The other most earnestly shut his eyes for a moment, "'then opened them very wide. "'Yes, yes,' he assented very low. "'Pity may be a crime.' "'Yes, and I knocked the enemies of the Republic on their head "'whenever I had them before me, without inquiring about the number. "'It seems to me that you and I ought to get on together.' The master of the Escampabar farmhouse murmured, however, that in times like these nothing could be taken as proof positive. It behoved every patriot to nurse suspicion in his breast. No sign of impatience escaped Peyrol. He was rewarded for his self-restraint and the unshaken good humour with which he had conducted the discussion by carrying his point. Citizen Scavola Bron, for that appeared to be the name of the master of the farm, an object of fear and dislike to the other inhabitants of the Germ Peninsula, might have been influenced by a wish to have someone with whom he could exchange a few words from time to time. No villagers ever came up to the farm, or were likely to, unless perhaps in a body and animated with hostile intentions. They resented his presence in their part of the world sullenly. "'Where do you come from?' was the last question he asked. "'I left Toulon two days ago.' Citizen Scavola struck the table with his fist, but this manifestation of energy was very momentary. And that was the town of which, by a decree, not a stone upon another was to be left, he complained, much depressed. Much of it is still standing, Peyrol assured him calmly. I don't know whether it deserved the fate you say was decreed for it. I was there for the last month or so, and I know it contained some good patriots. I know because I made friends with them all. Thereupon Peyrol mentioned a few names, which the retired Saint-Calotte greeted with a bitter smile and an ominous silence, as though the bearers of them had been only good for the scaffold and the guillotine. 
Come along and I will show you the place where you will sleep, he said with a sigh, and Payroll was only too ready. They entered the kitchen together. Through the open back door a large square of sunshine fell on the floor of stone flags. Outside one could see quite a mob of expectant chickens, while a yellow hen postured on the very doorstep, darting her head right and left with affectation. An old woman holding a bowl full of broken food put it down suddenly on a table and stared. The vastness and cleanliness of the place impressed Payroll favourably. "'You will eat with us here,' said his guide, and passed without stopping into a narrow passage, giving access to a steep flight of stairs. Above the first landing, a narrow spiral staircase led to the upper part of the farmhouse, and when the San Calotte flung open the solid plank door at which it ended, he disclosed to Payroll a large low room containing a four-poster bedstead, piled up high with folded blankets and spare pillows. There were also two wooden chairs and a large oval table. "'We could arrange this place for you,' said the master. "'But I don't know what the mistress will have to say,' he added." Payroll, struck by the peculiar expression of his face, turned his head and saw the girl standing in the doorway. It was as though she had floated up after them, for not the slightest sound of rustle or footfall had warned Payroll of her presence. The pure complexion of her white cheeks was set off brilliantly by her coral lips, and the bands of raven-black hair only partly covered by a muslin cap trimmed with lace. She made no sign, uttered no sound behaved exactly as if there had been nobody in the room, and Payroll suddenly averted his eyes from that mute and unconscious face with its roaming eyes. In some way or other, however, the San Calotte seemed to have ascertained her mind, for he said in a final tone, "'That's all right, then,' and there was a short silence, during which the woman shot her dark glances all round the room again and again, while on her lips there was a half-smile not so much absent-minded as totally unmotived, which Payroll observed with a side-glance, but could not make anything of. She did not seem to know him at all. "'You have a view of salt water on three sides of you,' remarked Payroll's future host. The farmhouse was a tall building, and this large attic with its three windows commanded on one side the view of Hier Roadstead on the first plan, with further blue undulations of the coast as far as Freyu and on the other the vast semicircle of barren high hills, broken by the entrance to Toulon Harbour, guarded by forts and batteries, and ending in Cape Cape, a squat mountain with sombre folds and a base of brown rocks, with a white spot gleaming on the very summit of it, a ci-devant shrine dedicated to Our Lady, and a ci-devant place of pilgrimage. The noonday glare seemed absorbed by the gem-like surface of the sea, perfectly flawless in the invincible depths of its colour. "'It's like being in a lighthouse,' said Peyrol. "'Not a bad place for a seaman to live in.' The sight of the sails dotted about cheered his heart. The people of landsmen with their houses and animals and activities did not count. What made for him the life of any strange shore were the craft that belonged to it, canoes, catamarans, balahus, prows, lorchas, mere dugouts, or even rafts of tied logs with a bit of mat for a sail from which naked brown men fished along stretches of white sand crushed under the tropical skyline, sinister in its glare and with a thundercloud crouching on the horizon. But here he beheld a perfect serenity, nothing sombre on the shore, nothing ominous in the sunshine. 
The sky rested lightly on the distant and vaporous outline of the hills, and the immobility of all things seemed poised in the air like a gay mirage. On this tideless sea several tartanes lay becalmed in the petit pass between Porquerolles and Cape Esterel, yet theirs was not the stillness of death, but of light slumber, the immobility of a smiling enchantment, of a Mediterranean fair day, breathless sometimes, but never without life. Whatever enchantment Peyrol had known in his wanderings, it had never been so remote from all thoughts of strife and death, so full of smiling security, making all his past appear to him like a chain of lurid days and sultry nights. He thought he would never want to get away from it, as though he had obscurely felt that his old rover's soul had been always rooted there. Yes, this was the place for him, not because expediency dictated, but simply because his instinct of rest had found its home at last. He turned away from the window and found himself face to face with the San Calotte, who had apparently come up to him from behind, perhaps with the intention of tapping him on the shoulder, but who now turned away his head. The young woman had disappeared. "'Tell me, patron,' said Perron, "'is there anywhere near this house a little dent in the shore with a bit of beach in it, perhaps, where I could keep a boat?' "'What do you want a boat for?' "'To go fishing when I have a fancy to,' answered Perrault curtly. Citizen Bron, suddenly subdued, told him that what he wanted was to be found a couple of hundred yards down the hill from the house. The coast, of course, was full of indentations, but this was a perfect little pool, and the Toulon blood-drinker's almond-shaped eyes became strangely sombre as they gazed at the attentive Peyrol. A perfect little pool, he repeated, opening from a cove that the English knew well. He paused. Peyrol observed, without much animosity, but in a tone of conviction, that it was very difficult to keep off the English whenever there was a bit of salt water anywhere, but what could have brought English seamen to a spot like this he couldn't imagine. It was when their fleet first came here, said the patriot in a gloomy voice, and hung round the coast before the anti-revolutionary traitors let them into Toulon, sold the sacred soil of their country for a handful of gold. Yes, in the days before the crime was consummated, English officers used to land in that cove at night and walk up to this very house. What audacity, commented Peyrol, who was really surprised. But that's just like what they are. Still, it was hard to believe. But wasn't it only a tale? The patriot flung one arm up in a strained gesture. I swore to its truth before the tribunal, he said. It was a dark story, he cried shrilly and paused. And cost her father his life, he said in a low voice. Her mother too. But the country was in danger, he added, still lower. Peyrol walked away to the western window and looked towards Toulon. In the middle of the great sheet of water within Cape Sissi, a tall two-decker lay becalmed, and the little dark dots on the water were her boats trying to tow her head round the right way. Peyrol watched them for a moment, and then walked back to the middle of the room. "'Did you actually drag him from this house to the guillotine?' he asked in his unemotional voice. The patriot shook his head thoughtfully, with downcast eyes. "'No.' He came over to Toulon just before the evacuation, this friend of the English, sailed over in a tartan he owned that is still lying here at the Madrag. He had his wife with him. They came over to take home their daughter, who was living then with some skulking old nuns. 
The victorious Republicans were closing in, and the slaves of tyranny had to fly. Come to fetch their daughter, mused Perron. Strange that guilty people should... The patriot looked up fiercely. It was justice, he said loudly. They were anti-revolutionists, and if they had never spoken to an Englishman in their life, the atrocious crime was on their heads. Hmm, stayed too long for their daughter, muttered Perrault. And so it was you who brought her home. I did, said the patron. For a moment his eyes evaded Perrault's investigating glance, but in a moment he looked straight into his face. No lessons of base superstition could corrupt her soul, he declared with exultation. I brought home a patriot. Perrault, very calm, gave him a hardly perceptible nod. Well, he said, all this won't prevent me sleeping very well in this room. I always thought I would like to live in a lighthouse when I got tired of roving about the seas. This is as near a lighthouse lantern as can be. You will see me with all my little affairs tomorrow, he added, moving towards the stairs. Salute, citoyen. There was in Peyrole a fund of self-command amounting to placidity. There were men living in the East who had no doubt whatever that Peyrole was a calmly terrible man, and they would quote illustrative instances which, from their own point of view, were simply admirable. But all Peyrole had ever done was to behave rationally, as it seemed to him, in all sorts of dangerous circumstances, without ever being led astray by the nature or the cruelty or the danger of any given situation. He adapted himself to the character of the event and to the very spirit of it, with a profound responsive feeling of a particularly unsentimental kind. Sentiment in itself was an artificiality of which he had never heard, and if he had seen it in action would have appeared to him too puzzling to make anything of. That sort of genuineness in acceptance made him a satisfactory inmate of the Escampabar farm. He duly turned up with all his cargo, as he called it, and was met at the door of the farmhouse itself by the young woman with the pale face and wandering eyes. Nothing could hold her attention for long amongst her familiar surroundings. Right and left and far away beyond you, she seemed to be looking for something while you were talking to her, so that you doubted whether she could follow what you said. But, as a matter of fact, she had all her wits about her. In the midst of this strange search for something that was not there, she had enough detachment to smile at Peyrole. Then, withdrawing into the kitchen, she watched, as much as her restless eyes could watch anything, Peyrole's cargo and Peyrole himself passing up the stairs. The most valuable part of Peyrol's cargo being strapped to his person, the first thing he did after being left alone in that attic room, which was like the lantern of a lighthouse, was to relieve himself of the burden and lay it on the foot of the bed. Then he sat down, and leaning his elbow far on the table, he contemplated it with a feeling of complete relief. That plunder had never burdened his conscience. It had merely on occasion oppressed his body, and if it had at all affected his spirits, it was not by its secrecy, but by its mere weight, which was inconvenient, irritating, and towards the end of a day altogether insupportable. It made a free-limbed, deep-breathing sailor-man feel like a mere overloaded animal, thus extending whatever there was of compassion in Peyrol's nature towards the four-footed beasts that carry men's burdens on the earth. The necessities of a lawless life had taught Peyrol to be ruthless, but he had never been cruel. Sprawling in the chair, stripped to the waist, robust and grey-haired, 
his head with a Roman profile propped up on a mighty and tattooed forearm, he remained at ease, with his eyes fixed on his treasure with an air of meditation. Yet Peyrol was not meditating, as a superficial observer might have thought, on the best place of concealment. It was not that he had not a great experience of that sort of property which had always melted so quickly through his fingers. What made him meditative was its character, not of a share of a hard-worn booty in toil, in risk, in danger, in privation, but of a piece of luck personally his own. He knew what plunder was and how soon it went, that this lot had come to stay. He had it with him, away from the haunts of his lifetime, as if in another world altogether. It couldn't be drunk away, gambled away, squandered away in any sort of familiar circumstances, or even given away. In that room, raised a good many feet above his revolutionised native land, where he was more of a stranger than anywhere else in the world, in this roomy garret full of light, and, as it were, surrounded by the sea, in a great sense of peace and security, Peyrol didn't see why he should bother his head about it so very much. It came to him that he had never really cared for any plunder that fell into his hands. No, never for any. And to take particular care of this, for which no one would seek vengeance or attempt recovery, would have been absurd. Peyrol got up and opened his big sandalwood chest, secured with an enormous padlock, part two of some old plunder gathered in a Chinese town in the Gulf of Tonkin, in company of certain brothers of the coast who, having boarded at night a Portuguese schooner and sent her crew adrift in a boat, had taken a cruise on their own account, years and years and years ago. He was young then, very young, and the chest fell to his share because nobody else would have anything to do with the cumbersome thing, and also for the reason that the metal of the curiously wrought thick hoops that strengthened it was not gold, but mere brass. He, in his innocence, had been rather pleased with the article, he had carried it about with him into all sorts of places, and also he had left it behind him, once for a whole year in a dark and noisome cavern on a certain part of the Madagascar coast. He had left it with various native chiefs, with Arabs, with a gambling hell-keeper in Pondicherry, with his various friends, in short, and even with his enemies. Once he had lost it altogether. That was on the occasion when he had received a wound which laid him open and gushing like a slashed wine-skin. A sudden quarrel broke out in a company of brothers over some matter of policy complicated by personal jealousies as to which he was as innocent as a babe unborn. He never knew who gave him the slash. Another brother, a chum of his, an English boy, had rushed in and hauled him out of the fray, and then he had remembered nothing for days. Even now, when he looked at the scar, he could not understand why he had not died. That occurrence, with the wound and the painful convalescence, was the first thing that sobered his character somewhat. Many years afterwards, when in consequence of his altered views of mere lawlessness he was serving as quartermaster on board the Hirondelle, a comparatively respectable privateer, he caught sight of that chest again in Port Louis, of all places in the world, in a dark little den of a shop kept by a lone Hindu. The hour was late, the side street was empty, and so Peyrol went in there to claim his property, all fair, a dollar in one hand and a pistol in the other, and was entreated abjectly to take it away. He carried off the empty chest on his shoulder, and that same night the privateer went to sea. Then only he found time to ascertain that he had made no mistake, 
because soon after he had got it first he had in grim wantonness scratched inside the lid with the point of his knife the rude outline of a skull and crossbones into which he had rubbed afterwards a little Chinese vermilion. And there it was, the whole design, as fresh as ever. In the garret full of light of the Escampabar farmhouse, the grey-haired payroll opened the chest, took all the contents out of it, laying them neatly on the floor, and spread his treasure, pockets downwards, over the bottom, which it filled exactly. Busy on his knees, he repacked the chest. A jumper or two, a fine cloth jacket, a remnant piece of matapolam muslin, costly stuff for which he had no use in the world, a quantity of fine white shirts, Nobody would dare to rummage in his chest, he thought, with the assurance of a man who had been feared in his time. Then he rose, and looking round the room and stretching his powerful arms, he ceased to think of the treasure, of the future, and even of tomorrow, in the sudden conviction that he could make himself very comfortable there. End of chapter 3「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. » And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.